Well, thank you again, Pete, for leading us in worship this morning. And uh, I'd love for you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we're going to complete this book after 40 something sermons. And uh, God willing, we will complete the uh, our series on it this morning. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we will commence at verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 5. Follow along with me, please. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now, just in passing. For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Verse 10. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Verse 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labours. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca greet you, heartily in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And thus ends the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. What a journey we've been on. But as we look into this last section this morning we can tend to rush into thinking that these are mere cursory closing remarks with very little weight in them. But Paul's seemingly routine closure is not only the inspired word of God, but they continue an important thread that answers questions, I believe, that we might have when we have contemplated Verse 58 of chapter 15. And let me read that to you again. 
This is what verse 58 of chapter 15 said. We discussed a couple of weeks ago. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so we might well ask, upon reading that, as the Corinthians no doubt did, what does being steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, what does that really look like? Put some feet on this for us, Paul, please. Well, Paul gave us one glimpse, as he gave the Corinthians a glimpse, and we looked at this last week, in that they and we likewise are to be generous givers, we're to be good stewards of our finances, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 16. That's one glimpse. And in this last section that we've read this morning, I believe he gives us three more ways. Well, that's where I've categorised it. You may categorise it four, but for the sake of our message this morning, I've given it three more ways of how Paul puts feet on what it looks like to be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. The first one would be being good stewards of the opportunities the Lord gives us. second one is being good stewards of the Lord's way for powerful, healthy Christian living. And thirdly, being good stewards of the Lord's people around us. And so we're going to look at this last section under those three headings. And the first being being good stewards of the opportunity the Lord gives us. We see this in verses 5 to 12. It's by way of illustration, some of you will already well know. So forgive my repetition of this. Last week, our son Brad left New Zealand with a team of three other Kiwi believers for the country of Zambia. And this month-long trip has a goal of serving in, in different ways in, in a Bible college that uh, their church back in New Zealand has uh, played a big part in starting. And, um, and they're heading back over like they have done for a number of years now to do some hand work, hand on, hands-on work in the Bible school and in other tribal villages where churches have been planted out of this Bible school uh, under this one church. And so this trip has been planned, arrangements have been made, finances have been saved as these men, four of them, venture into an opportunity, an open door to do the work of the Lord. Now as we think about the work of the Lord, uh, it's uh, an expression that we see here that the Spirit of God uses and Paul does on a couple of times. As we think about the work of the Lord, it's easy for us as I no doubt it was for them, but I believe so much more today, it's easy for us to get sidetracked and do heaps of stuff and be involved in heaps of activity, but often, sad to say, it can be far from being a work of the Lord. The reason for this is that a lot of our work done in the name of the Lord is work according to our plans, our agendas, our goals, which often sad to say, fails to match the divine blueprint of what the Lord's work really is all about. God's plan, his blueprint, clearly defines what his work is, folks. It does. And basically, at the bare roots, at the bottom line, it is edifying believers and evangelizing the lost. That's what Paul and his team did, right? For those who have been studying the book of Acts in our home groups, we have seen that, well, Paul went out. He was all about evangelizing the lost. 
And he would go to synagogues and he would preach the gospel and he would preach the gospel and he would preach the gospel. And on a second ministry journey, because people got saved, churches were planted and we see then he was all about edifying believers, edifying believers, edifying believers. He never did not stop preaching the gospel, but those went out and they preached the gospel and that's how it is. So it's edifying believers and evangelizing the lost. That's the work of the Lord, bottom line. So if our efforts... Our plans, our goals, our ministry activities do not match up with this criterion. We need to question our work. Is it his work or is it ours? And this is what the seemingly boring travel itinerary of Paul teaches us here in this last section. It teaches us that God has a a blueprint for his work, a plan for his work, and Paul is presented, I believe, as an example for us in how it should be carefully and attentively followed. So that's how we're going to look at this last section this morning. And the first example that Paul teaches us is that plans need to be made. Plans need to be made. You know, I come from a church background, as some of you all know, where planning and having goals for for ministry was very much frowned upon. You might think that's strange, but true, that was what how it was. And the reason for that, it was believed that uh, human planning and planning by mere men like ourselves uh, could be encroaching on the work and the will of the Spirit of God. And so a whole lot of ministry opportunity, I might say, looking back, a whole lot of ministry opportunity was never grasped and what was grasped had an overriding loose as the spirit leads kind of planning. You know what I mean? Well, that's not what the Apostle Paul teaches us here by example, folks. He was a man with a plan. His plans were to go through Macedonia. After leaving Ephesus, which is our modern Turkey, his plans were to go west and to go to Macedonia. And, and on his travels down through there, he was intending to spend a whole bunch of time at Corinth. He didn't want to just pass there quickly, like an overnight visit or a weekend visit. He wanted to spend some time there before heading back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. That what was his plan. And so he adds that his travel plans were on hold though. They were on hold. That's what he's planned to do. And But for the moment his plans were on hold because of what? A wide door of effective service was still open in the city of Ephesus, although that there was heaps of opposition there. Paul made plans knowing his work was not in vain in the Lord. Now folks, notice that Paul's plans were driven and steered by this one fact, a wide door of effective service. That is, the gospel and the building up of believers, as we've seen, some of us, most of us, in Acts chapter 19. This was wide open for him. His personal plans for ministry, in other words, were not governed and dictated by the violent circumstances that were against him in this city. The opposition that he experienced there in Ephesus, it became a challenge. It was. It was a real challenge, but it never became a hindrance. Yes, he had plans. Yes, his plans were necessary. But the overriding factor was his plans were always in the light of the door of the opportunity that the Lord opened for him no matter what. 
Folks, there is truth in the adage that says, he who does not plan, plans to fail, right? Or rather, he who aims at nothing will surely hit it. A lot of truth in that. But as we think about this and bring it down to where we're at today, let's put some feet on it, shall we? We plan our holidays, right? I'm already planning mine. God willing. We plan to buy a home. We plan our finances so the money will go around and cover the necessaries. We plan our children's education. We plan our even retirement. I shy away from that at this stage. And on and on it could go, the plans we make. And don't get me wrong, we need to do this. We need to do this. Otherwise, we'll just drift aimlessly. We need to plan in order to be good stewards of the resources that God has given us. Absolutely we do. Now let me ask, you and myself, do you have a plan for your spiritual life in serving the Lord? Are you intentional about this or are you just figuring that spiritual growth and abounding in the work of the Lord will happen all on its own. Or more specifically, do you have a plan for regular Bible reading and studying it more intensively? Do you have a plan for that? God willing, next year I would love to start a Christian living class here on Sunday mornings, 9 o'clock. Maybe you can include that in your plan for this area. Uh, Do you have a plan for serving the Lord in more specific ways than maybe that you are now? Or or, or are you too busy with other things? What's your plan? Uh, Do you have a plan for encouraging and edifying your forever family here at NCC and to serve in the ministry of the gospel? Do you have a plan for that? Do you parents here this morning have a plan for instructing your kids in the things of God and nurturing them God's way? Do you have a plan for that? In all these planning challenges, all I want to point out, folks, is this. A haphazard approach to spiritual growth of yourself, your family... And this church will only ever result in weak Christianity. Paul made plans to abound in the work of the Lord and he took up the doors of opportunity that opened up before him. Second principle, or an example we see here in this section, that Paul's plans were flexible. Some of us don't like that word. I'm a rigid kind of guy. My wife keeps telling me I need this probably more than anyone. Paul's plans were flexible. And as we look at the section, we cannot help but see and notice the words like uh, in verse 6, perhaps, or wherever I may go, or in verse 7, the word hope to remain with you. And if the Lord's permi- Lord permits, we cannot help notice those kind of words. And, and the one thing we see here is that Paul, what he did, he left room for God to change his plans. Her plan, his plans were not rigid. 
He put on hold his plan to visit Corinth. And by the way, this is not the first time his mission plans were interrupted, right? You remember it happened on his second missionary journey. He's, on, he's about to launch on, he's on his third missionary journey when he writes this letter, by the way. Okay? This happened on his second ministry journey. And he was going up through modern Turkey and he wanted to go further north, up into Bithynia, perhaps hit the Silk Road, Head all the way to India. I don't know, but he wanted to head up that way into the, into the northern regions. But a vision came, remember, and the Lord spoke to him. He says, young man, go west. Forget about north. Go west. And so he obeys the command of the Lord and heads across. And you know the story. Next story, he lands in Philippi and there he, he, he plants the Philippian church, can we say. Paul understood that the best plans of men sometimes fail to see the big picture from God's perspective. He understood that. Paul was not fickle. He wasn't indecisive, which, were, which was the, what were the, Corinthian, the Corinthian church were accusing him of, by the way. Paul was humble, and yet he was realistic. That's what caused him to change his plans. And actually, Paul had to defend himself before the Corinthian church over this very issue of I'm coming to you but not yet um, it's not time yet and, and they sort of accused him of being indecisive and saying one thing but without meaning it and so he defends himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17 and 18 where he says therefore I was not vacillating backwards and forwards sign of thing that's what that means I was not vacillating when I intended to do this was I? rhetorical question do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes and no, no at the same time? In other words, I do not do that. And he carries on, he says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, it hasn't, I'm not speaking at the side of my mouth and saying one thing and out the other side of my mouth saying another, no. But Paul allowed God room in his life to move and to tweak and change his plans. See, Paul in his humility made his plans on the understanding that God is sovereign. I wonder if we do that. He made plans understanding that God is sovereign and he has the absolute right to intervene and change or even if he so wishes to reverse his plans in whatever way he chose. Paul understood that. He was humble enough to understand and to bow for that higher authority in God. And Paul was also a realist. He was real, a real, understood the, the reality of, of situations. He, and he knew that all, all plans in the world, no matter how watertight they may seem, and sometimes we make plans that, that look rock solid, right? He understood that no matter how watertight his plans may seem, there are numerous things that are completely out of his control that can turn plans on their head. He understood that. How true it is, folks. We cannot always go where we want to go and do what we want to do, no matter how well we plan, right? Or how sincere even our spiritual motives may be. David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa. Did you know that right throughout his life he longed with a passion and even made plans to be a missionary in China? That's what he wanted. But where did the Lord 
intervene and open a door of opportunity for him. To Africa. Just as the Lord opened another door for William Carey to India and, and, to, and China itself to Hudson Taylor. We might say the Lord often interrupts many of our plans in different ways to bring about his purposes in the gospel. That's what it is, right? My wife and I had plans over 15 years ago to return to New Zealand, the country of our birth, to take up pastoral ministry and also to be with our family. But the Lord intervened. He interrupted our plans. 16 years later, here we are, still here. Folks, some of the best opportunities to serve the Lord come to us as apparent interruptions to our plans. How flexible are we when these seeming interruptions happen? How flexible are we? Do we see them as challenges that lead to greater opportunities to serve the Lord? Or or do we give up and lament that our plans were squashed? Our son Brad, as I mentioned earlier on, on a flight to Johannesburg, had to exit from the Auckland airport. And for some reason or other, he used his uh, visa card and the money machine up there and the machine gobbled the thing up. It didn't even spit it out, it just kept it. About to board a flight to, to Perth, then to Africa. His short email that he was able to send me from Perth after this happened was, oh well, is what he would say. Oh well, I will just have to learn like, to live like the many of Zambians on next to nothing for the next month. <laughs> A hiccup in his spending plans does not phase him into panic or woe is me. He has taken on this apparent interruption as a challenge. Praise the Lord. You see, folks, flexibility in our planning is summed up beautifully by the Apostle James as well when he writes this. Listen to this. This is what James says. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will do this or go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. James 4, 13 to 14. That's the whole idea of flexibility in our planning posts. It's making plans. Listen to this. It's making plans which are necessary and absolutely essential that are soft and sensitive towards the Lord's overriding will and purposes for us. A third principle in being good stewards of our God-given opportunities is to learn that our, our plans should be prioritised. They should be. You know, Paul was not a piker, for those who don't know what that is. He wasn't a guy that uh, opted out when the going got tough or said one thing but didn't carry it out. He wasn't a piker. And Ephesus was a tough and dangerous and a spiritually challenging place. As you will know, Acts 19 and 20, for those who are not up with a play, read it. He was not a guy, a missionary, a man of God, who was always on the lookout for greener grass in the mission work. He wasn't a guy, Lord, um, I want to be a missionary, send me to Hawaii. Or maybe even send me to New Zealand. No, no, he wasn't looking for greener grass. Never did that. 
And the reason for this attitude and practice is that Paul made his plans according to priorities. The priorities that he'd made. You see, the Lord's work was going well, as we have seen in Ephesus, and Paul believed that it was most important to continue and oversee the work rather than immediately rush off to Corinth according to his original schedule. Paul also believed that it was vital that he spend significant time with the Corinthian church. He knew that. It was essential. They needed them. He knew the difficulties were going down to you. That's why he had to write the second letter. That's why he wrote the first letter. There was a whole lot of problems in that church as we have looked at it. And he knew it was essential. There was a real need in Corinth. But a priority kicked in. He did not want to leave Ephesus until his work was completed there, even though there was much opposition and, as I've already described, a real need in Corinth. I told my granddaughter the other day, when trying to teach you how to ride a bike, there is never any honest gain without any real pain. It probably didn't help her too much. It may not have been the best kind of words as she was picking herself up from the asphalt uh, for a crash. But the principle is often true, right? Paul felt a lot of pain in Ephesus. He really did. A lot of pain. Physical and spiritual pain. And all the emotional grief and, and spiritual attacks that you could imagine. He felt in pain. But his pain was on the lower end of his priority scale compared to the wide door for effective service. Did you get the picture? Did he have, did he have opportunities to serve the Lord elsewhere? Of course he did. Just like we have opportunities to serve the Lord elsewhere, right? We do. That's why needs never constitute a call when it comes to missionary service or whatever. No, 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 no. The question is, what and where is your priority for serving the Lord right now? That's the question. Let me put some more feet on this for you. I would say our first priority is in our homes, right? Because if we cannot serve the Lord faithfully there by upholding God's word and effectively ministering to our families, whoever or wherever they might be, I doubt we will ever be enabled to serve them anywhere else. I'm not talking about success or failure here. I'm talking about faithfully serving. This principle is seen in the requirement of elders and deacons in any church. It says there in First um, Timothy three, four, and five that um, the elders and deacons must manage, or elders must make manage his own household well, keeping his children under control with dignity. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? There's the principle. And I would suggest that your priority should be a wholehearted serving also in the fellowship of the local church. This is another priority where the Lord has what He has placed you right now. The serving opportunity is the Lord's work and folks, you will be held accountable in how you have prioritised this door of opportunity the Lord has placed right on your doorstep. In your home and in your local church, just as two examples. But I believe in top priority. 
being a faithful servant in the Lord's work, you know, doesn't always start off with great and magnificent areas of service. But most often with small and mundane things. You know that? Things like doing the dishes and things like on a cleaning roster. Things like attendance regularly here on a Sunday morning, etc., you see, folks, if we're not wholeheartedly serving the Lord in the small things, then most likely we would never get, we would never give the Lord our best in anything else. You see, the door of opportunity is before you right now to serve the Lord. It is, it's right now. But what level of priority does this have in your life? That's the question. A fourth principle for abounding in the work of the Lord we see in verses 10 to 12. And we see here that our plan should include being a team player. Paul was a team player. He was a, he was a team worker. We even see that in these verses. And as we trace his, his uh, missionary journeys, it always had people. He never went out by himself, right? The only time that I can think of Paul being himself, when he was out maybe in the Arabian desert for three years, but then alone God was with him and God taught him. We don't know what took place there, but it was there alone and God instructed him. But on his mission work, he was never alone. He always had people with him. Yes, some of those relationships didn't work out as was with John Mark and Barnabas and there was contention, but they sorted that out. But Paul still didn't go alone. He picked up Timothy on the way and there was a team. He was a team player. And in these verses we see his concern and sensitivity to other members on the team. And um, even though he was a great apostle whom God had revealed more to him than any other apostle, he was still sensitive to the team. You see, Paul never lauded it, can we say, over his other team members. But what did he do? He worked with them. He encouraged them in their respective fields of service. He valued and respected his team members. He admonished the Corinthians. He says, do not give Timothy a hard time, by the way, please. Because he's in the Lord's work just as I am. He was also sensitive to Apollos. You know that great preacher, that eloquent man? More than likely when it comes to preaching, Apollos was far more eloquent than the Apostle Paul. But that's not the deal. Here was Apollos. He was a minister of the Lord. And Paul encourages that I really want you to go over to, 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 uh, to Achaia, down through Macedonia. I really want you to go over there. But Apollos says, oh, no, no. I think I'll hang around a bit. I've got some other things that I really feel I need to do here. And so even the great Apollos, going against the greater, greater Apostle Paul... The Apostle Paul was sensitive to this man's personal situation, his personal convictions. You see that in verse 12. And so he was part of a team because that's how, folks, the Lord's servants abound in the work of the Lord. You know, even Jesus worked with a team, right? He never ran it alone. How sad it is when we see believers choosing to go it alone. How sad. Maybe because of pride. Or selfishness? They go it alone? Or, or maybe it's pure apathy. Or maybe it's a my way or nothing kind of attitude. They go it alone. How sad. How sad it is also when members of the church 
frequent the fellowship of the saints only when it suits them. They forsake the assembly. That's what happens. They reject their responsibility of being a team player and part of a team. In other words, I want to go it alone. They choose to sit mostly on the bench, as it were, and not get too involved. How sad. May we value what it means to be a team member, to be a part of a team here at New Community Church. Our second point is good stewards of the Lord's blueprint for Christian living. We see this in verses uh, 13 to 14. And so in his closing words, the Apostle Paul cannot sidestep God's blueprint for healthy Christian living. And so what he does here, he gives five imperatives, that's five commands that believers need to obey in order to live powerful and healthy Christian lives. Okay, He's speaking to believers here. And so he spells out in these two short verses this. Be alert, be firm, be mature, be strong and be loving. You see that? Five commands. In other words, their stewardship of the faith that God had given them demanded obedience and ongoing spiritual discipline. That's what it demanded. First of all, they were to be alert. That's what these Christians are to be and that's what we as Christians are to be. We're to be alert. That is, it means we're to be vigilant. We're to be wide awake to all the evil and the cultural influence that was making devastating inroads into their lives. They were to be alert to that. And you know what? The Corinthians were anything else but alert. They were in a spiritual stupor. They lived self-satisfied lives. They were apathetic. They failed to discern the spiritual danger that they were in. And so Paul says, be alert, be awake. In other words, don't be like that indifferent frog in the glass of water that's slowly heating to boiling point and the frog just remains until it dies. Don't be like that. Also says, stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Notice that in the faith? It's not a stand firm in what you believe. Stand firm in the faith. This carries the idea of taking a stand and maintaining the truth of the gospel at all cost. It's like a military guard standing at his post, wide awake, and never deviating from his post. In other words, there was no room, there is no room for dilly-dallying around and being politically correct simply to appease the political or the cultural climate of the day in regards to the gospel. There's no room for that. And we have heaps of issues going on in our country right now where we are called to stand firm, right? In the ethical area, in the moral area. We must stand firm and hold to the traditions which you have been taught. That's what the Apostle Paul said, by the way, to the Thessalonian church. As a good steward of the Lord's blueprint for Christian living, we must also act like men. Okay? Act like men. Now, this is not, ladies, this is not telling ladies to be anything other than ladies. Ladies. 
in a colloquial expression, it's telling us all as men and women, as believers, to man up. That's what it's telling us. In other words, stop being babies. By the way, as the church at Corinth was rebuked for in chapter 3, verse 1, when Paul writes this letter, he says, stop being immature. Stop sucking on milk like babies all the time. You need to be going on the stronger stuff, the meat. Be mature, man up in the truths of God's word. Discipline and train yourself to godliness. That's what he tells them. My dear people, there's a crying need. There is. There's a crying need in our day for believers to man up in regard to the truth and the commands of Scripture rather than being spiritual wimps. It's mature believers. It's immature believers, sorry. It's immature believers that are so vulnerable. And we see so many today. The immature believers are so vulnerable, they're just like chaff, and as like the scriptures describe, they're, they're blown and carried about by every wind and doctrine. Ephesians 4 verse 13. So when something new comes along, whether it's right or wrong, off they'll get carried away and they'll run with it. Man up. Believers also commanded to be strong. Now this word here, for be strong, this one word in the Greek, uh, it, it really carries the idea of be strengthened rather than uh, employing some personal character or some personal strength to face off a difficult task. Okay, So it's be strengthened. So what this means is that because we cannot strengthen ourselves to fight against fleshly desires, you know, you can try and turn over a new leaf if you want to, but it won't work. Because we cannot strengthen ourselves to fight fleshly desires and spiritual forces or darkness that we face every day, we cannot strengthen ourselves to fight off those things because that kind of strengthening is the Lord's work, right? It's the Lord's work in us. So therefore, what we're called to do here is to submit ourselves to the Lord. We have to submit to the Lord in order to be strengthened by the Lord or of the Lord. Folks, we can only be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Ephesians 16, as we submit to the Lord through his word. Be strengthened, be strong. The fifth command tells us that we're to be loving. We're to be loving. Of all the needs in the Corinthian assembly, this is what they lacked the most. As you remember, Paul spent a whole chapter on this in chapter 13 of First Corinthians. And, uh, and because it was a real issue in the church, and dare I say, it would probably be the most needed medicine in every single local church in this day as well. Everything we do here, it says, is to be done in love. You notice that? In love. It doesn't say with love. Because when you say with love, that's like love is an attachment or some trimming that's tacked on whatever you do. Okay? It's like an added extra. But here, it's, it's, it's all to be done in the atmosphere of love. And that's a big difference, folks. It's a big difference. In other words, love needs to bathe and surround and penetrate and overflow in all that we do. Because you know why? 
It's only love like that. Love like that. That softens hard thoughts. That curbs rash statements. That mellows things like impatience. You see, folks, when love really, really, really rules, it never fails. Never fails. It goes all out. You know how it, what it does? It goes all out to love as Jesus loved, right? And folks, how we need to be loved and to love just like that. Paul could say, Peter could say an affirmation of this command. He says in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all else, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So you want to know how to live a Christian life powerfully? How about starting with these five commands? Because this here is God's blueprint for powerful Christian living. And just finally and briefly, being a good steward of God's of people that God has placed around us. We see this in the last um, ten verses. And we see that the content in these verses are very much tied to verse 14, where it speaks about love, to be done in love. We see here, I believe, a, a picture of how love should flow out and work in the Corinthian church. And dare I say, this is how love should work in every church, including this one, right? And one theme that is central in this little section is that we see lots of people stuff going down. You know that? Now, we're not going to study each person here, and there are a number of them, some named and some are not. But these are real people, folks. That's what I want you to get hold of. These are real people. Real people with real needs and with real ministry who abounded in the work of the Lord. That's what's going down here. And all these people had one thing in common. common. Though coming, as we look at their names, we see that they are from very different people groups, from different ethnic groups, from different backgrounds. Though they come from different backgrounds, they have one common thread. They were united by God's love through personal faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, as a footnote, I believe, in verse 22, Paul says that without such love, a person is eternally damned. What a warning right at the middle end of his letter. He's not going to let that go. So he's reminding those people that if there's any among you who have not experienced the love of God and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are damned, accursed. Pretty powerful words. Not the kind of thing I would probably put at the end of my letter to someone, but Paul was inspired by God, and so these are God's words. And so here were these real people. There were those who were devoted, devoted to the ministry among the saints. There are those who need to recognise others who serve amongst them. So there's this, this relationship that needs to be happening in the, 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 the local church, in any local church. There are those who were Paul's companions and they refreshed him in a time of need. There were those who brought joy and who expressed affection. There were those who showed tremendous hospitality as Priscilla and Aquila did by having the church in their home. You get the picture? A lot of people stuff going down here, right? 
The Lord works through people, ordinary people, just like you and me. Now, if you want a picture of what a New Testament church should look like, this is what I'm talking about. A picture of love and action. All the doctrine, all the eloquent preaching, all the generous giving, all the mission work and activity, all of that is good and is needed as it is. It will never compensate, never, ever, ever compensate for love, joy, devotion, hospitality, affection, refreshing, encouragement. That needs to be happening among the saints as natural as is breathing. Is that how it works here? Is that how your heart works? Is that how my heart works? I hang my head in shame. Lord, teach me. Give me a heart of love for the saints. A greater heart of love for the saints like I've never had before. May we learn to be good stewards of God's love towards those he has placed around us. May God bless his word in this letter to us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give thanks that you are our God. And Father, as surely as I and others have been challenged today, Lord, work in us, we pray, and give us a heart of love like the Lord Jesus. Mould us and make us more like him, we pray. Father, we thank you for the many, many months we have spent in this letter and the teaching and the exhortation, the rebukes, the encouragement that we have been given. We thank you for your word. It's our authority for life and living. May it be always so and increasingly so in our lives. And so, Father, as we go from this place today, continue to watch over us and care for us. Nurture us through your word by the Spirit of God, we pray. Bless us all in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.